you. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for your word and just help us this evening. Just come and uh, be with us. Be present with us as we think, as we listen. And would you speak? Amen. So we're starting uh, this series in 1 Samuel, and uh, it's in the Old Testament, as we've seen. It comes at a time when there's great political turmoil. The end of Judges, the book of Judges, finishes by saying this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And it's at this point in history that we have the start of 1 Samuel. God's people have um, become numerous. Uh, he promised to Abraham they'd become as, like lots of people. They've become lots of people. They've made it into the promised land. But they're not really living under the kingship of God. And their own sort of ruling system is in a bit of a mess. And into this point in history, we hear about the lives of Samuel and David. And that's what we're going to be focusing on as we go through 1 Samuel. Now, it is an amazing book, and it contains in it quite a lot of different kinds of literature. So there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's military records, there's political treaties in it, um, governmental records, things like that. But the big, big bulk of it is narrative. It's story. There are family stories of births, marriages, and deaths, of love and hate, of rivalry, of violence and rape, of friendship and loyalty. There are stories that centre on women. There are stories that centre on men. There are stories that have a focus on the young and those that have a focus on the aged. There are stories that come from the town and stories that come from the countryside. It's an amazing collection and there's a rich, rich depth of story. It focuses in a little bit, obviously, on the main kind of ruling families of Israel, but it doesn't ignore ordinary lives. And in many ways, the writers end up pointing out just how very ordinary the ruling people are. So there's going to be loads to draw out of this book. There's going to be a lot to be thinking about in terms of power, about our relationship with God and with each other. But today, we're focusing in on just one family. And this one family, I find uh, quite exciting uh, because they're not perfect. Now, uh, we've just... Uh, not too long away from the Christmas period, um, and I don't know if you, you spent Christmas with friends who are your family, or, or with your actual blood family, or, or how you spent Christmas, but when you look on social media, people put up the most beautiful images, don't they? I've done it myself. Everyone's smiling around a table, everyone's harmoniously playing that board game, everyone's skiing beautifully and smiling as they do, and um, everyone's family looks perfect. So I thought tonight I'd show you a few pictures of mine. We've got some slides. Um, so this is uh, the ideal family. Um, and, and then our, this is, I've asked their permission. This is my daughter, Ella, getting very fed up with her little brother, who thinks it's hilarious to keep hugging her, even though she's really annoyed with him. I don't know if you can see that face there, but if looks could kill. There we go. Next one. Um, when you've been dragged on one too many dog walks and you can't take the dad jokes anymore, Ella totally lost it and went for full-blown attack of Richard. Um, next one. 
So Ben is smiling, my middle son is smiling in this, but there's about to be a punch-up that happens any second later because uh, basically this is totally an unfair situation. Ben, my stronger older brother, is not letting me have a go with the stick um, to throw for the dog. So there we go. It, families, they're not often perfect. Even the very best-looking ones of them have their moments, have their tensions, have their times when things are hard. And the, just the first thing I want to say about this book is we start with this family that has got a lot of difficulties going on. It's pretty dysfunctional. And the Bible, in a sense, is sort of saying, because of human nature, that's actually pretty normal. And if your family is sometimes just a little bit rubbish... Do you know what? You're not on your own, and that's not that unusual, despite what Instagram and Facebook look like. So, I'm just going to point out some of the complete difficulties and dysfunctions of the family that we're starting this story with. Um, and uh, there's lots of them, so here we go. Um, the first difficulty, this is a difficulty for the family, is that Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, is infertile. She cannot have a child, but she desperately wants one. And so she is in a place of pain and of hurt. For her, the family is not complete. And it just gut-wrenchingly hurts. It's difficult. Then we see uh, the issue of jealousy and callousness come up in this family. Did you notice that um, Elkanah, the husband in the family, gets portrayed as a pretty good man? You know, he worships the Lord regularly, goes for the annual sacrifices. In many ways, he's a loving husband, um, and he tries his best with Hannah. You know, like she can't have children, but he still tries to love her and gives her an extra portion of the meat, and he does his best. He's portrayed as a good man, but perhaps far more than he realizes, his culture has shaped him more than the Lord Almighty. For what he's done is taken two wives. And we know, because God's told us in Genesis, that his ideal for marriage is for one man and one woman. And as soon as you mess in any way with God's ideal, things get deeply complicated. And here we just get a glimpse into the complexities of this situation. Here he is, trying to keep these two women happy and at peace. And yet we meet Penina, the one who can have children, yet perhaps feels slightly less loved than probably the first wife, Hannah. And so she's jealous, and she's fighting for her place. And so she provokes and pokes at Hannah, she lets out her hurt and her anger on Hannah. How often do we let out our hurt on others? And it's complex and it's difficult. And, and in a way, you can feel sympathy for all the different characters in this situation because it's just difficult. It's complicated. 
Jesus reinforces for us in Matthew 19 that it is indeed God's perfect plan would be for, for one man and one woman in marriage. And so this situation just doesn't work well. Then the other thing I think we find in this family, and this I think can often be the most painful thing in families, you want your family to be the people who really get you, really understand you and love you properly. And yet so often they don't and it just hurts. It's painful and difficult. And we see this with um, Elkanah and Hannah. He says to her in verse 8, he sort of says, um, well, come on, Hannah, you know, aren't I... Aren't I more than enough for you? Aren't I more than ten sons to you? And in doing that, he's trying to make her feel better, but he's just misunderstood the depth of her pain. And in doing so, he trivializes her pain. And then this leads to a place, a fourth point of loneliness. And loneliness and isolation double our pain for us. And so we've got all this stuff going on in this family and a lot, lot more. And yet the good news is that God comes and works. He chooses them to become a very special part of his much bigger story. And this all points to the fact that if you and I today are God's children, we too get to be part of a much bigger story And you know, whatever you're facing as you head into this year, whatever your earthly family is like, God sees you. And God invites you to let him weave you into his much bigger story. You see, he is at work at bringing about the kingdom of God, his family of sons and daughters who will worship him and live in his kingdom, free from pain. So I want tonight just to look at a few things that we learn from Hannah, and some things that are revealed to us about God as we look at this passage. And I think the first thing I want to say about Hannah is, I think, you know, she's held up um, by Jewish people and and throughout history, and certainly Christian people as well, as being a great, revered character in the Bible. And um, the reason I think she's so revered is that she knows where to take pain. You see, when pain engulfs us for whatever reason, we can respond to it in all kinds of ways. Um, don't know about you, but you know, I'd rather not go there with that pain, so I will watch a Netflix series. Or I would rather not deal with that, so I'll just scroll through my newsfeed on my phone. Or I will do X, Y, or Z. Or I'll just get cross at somebody else. Or, you know, and you can finish off that. Or, or, or. We take our pain to all kinds of places. But Hannah is revered because she takes her pain to prayer. We don't know if she ever totally lost it with Penina or with Elkanah. We just don't know. Maybe she did at times. Maybe she didn't. We don't know. But the bit that's recorded for us is the bit where she takes her pain to the place of prayer. And that's recorded for us as an example to us. So when she goes to 
she lower and things just get too much for her. She goes into the temple and she starts to pray to God and she makes a promise to God. It's not so much of a, a bargain, but a sense that if God were to do this miracle for her, if God was to give her this son that she wanted, um, that this son would be part of God's bigger story, that this son would be special. And so she offers him back up to God. Now, the truth is that a son of Hannah and Elkanah, because of their um, place in the society of Israel, would have been a son that would have gone to go and work and serve in the temple. But it would have been unusual to have given up the child so young. But she does. She offers God, if you answer this prayer, I just believe you're going to do something so very special here. And he does. But before we get to that point, we hear in verse 16 the beautifully raw and honest way in which she prayed. She pours out her heart in great anguish and grief, so caught up in her prayer that Eli the priest thinks she is drunk. Once he's been put in straight, um, he begins to pray with her. You know, hearing someone's pain and standing with them in prayer can be of great comfort in and of itself, just because pain is so isolating. Actually having the comfort of having someone else come alongside is very special. And the prayers we see in this chapter are very honest prayers. They're direct and straightforward ones. In verse 18, we see something very special. Hannah prays, and then it says, her face was no longer downcast. She prays, and then her face is no longer downcast. What's happening is that in prayer, as she's pouring out her pain, as she's pouring out her grief, God comes and bestows his peace on her. The prayer has not yet been answered and yet her face is no longer downcast. You see something happens that's really special. I don't know um, how many of you've got the experience or testimony of this but when something just hurts, have you ever wrestled through the night with it before God? Have you ever got cross with God and angry about it and cried out to him and wrestled it through and yet come to the end of that point of wrestling where you're like okay Lord but you're still Lord and I will worship you even though this situation's rubbish have you ever wrestled like that really deeply have you ever been to that place where you've just offered him your pain if you have you'll know that something slowly begins to happen and that is that his peace comes and begins to dwell in you and on you. It says this in Philippians 4, it says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything present your request to God with thanksgiving and the peace of Christ which passes all understanding will come to you. It's one of God's beautiful promises to us. It doesn't always happen the first minute we start our praying. It sometimes means we have to pray about the same thing over and over again. But as we surrender our pain to him, and we give it over to him, he bestows peace upon us. And we see something of that beginning to happen for Hannah. So, 
We learn from Hannah that she takes her pain to a place of prayer. The second thing we learn from Hannah is that she knows something of the God that she is praying to. It's important to know who it is we're praying to. And she prays out, Lord Almighty. And actually, it's the first time that those two words, Lord and Almighty, are put together. She knows that the God is the Lord of the universe, but he's a mighty God. He's all-powerful. And so she knows, she's got to know the God that she's praying to. She knows enough about God to know that he's caring because she trusts that he is going to be as concerned about her as he is with the whole nation of Israel. So much so that she can pour out her pain to him. Hannah has confidence to approach God in prayer, but also has reverence as she prays. She knows she's praying to a holy God. So what do we learn about God through his dealings with Hannah? Well, Hannah's prayer does get answered. She gives birth to a son. There were many women in Israel at that time who no doubt prayed a similar prayer. And prayer wasn't answered. We will all know people who've travelled with that pain and perhaps ourselves. And so I just want to encourage us as we look at this passage and, and particularly as we look at it in small groups, just to be very gentle with one another. It's a difficult passage. It's deeply painful. There's all kinds of reasons why we might not have a child and would have wanted one. There may be others amongst us who've, who've never wanted children. That's not a desire that we have or carry that God's given us. And we must be very careful not to presume upon each other. But when we see pain in one another, we're not to be like Penina or Elkanah and trivialize it. We're instead called to stand alongside one another, like Eli, Eli to stand alongside and pray with on Thursday, I was uh, set aside the afternoon to write my sermon. I ended up having an interesting time. Um, I ended up sitting with someone who was showing the first signs of going through a miscarriage. And we wept. And it was pretty horrible. It wasn't very nice. And then I realized, oh, it's my turn to take a meal to Sam and Charlotte and to celebrate their new baby. It's so exciting. And I rushed from the pain and tragedy of that situation into the joy of meeting the beautiful Ava. Sam, she's gorgeous. Um, and it was just a very strange afternoon as I held those two different situations of pain and joy. But the lady I was with who was showing the signs of miscarriage was very wise. And as we prayed, God's peace came. And she said... I don't know yet, because I need to go and discern whether I need to keep asking God for a child and keep trying, or whether it's time for me to say, mm, that's it now, and I'll live with this. And she said, I'm going to need to take time to discern. 
Because sometimes, like Paul, you get yourself in that situation where you're like the thorn in the flesh, you know, and Paul says, I've got a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. We don't know whether it's blindness or something. We don't know. People have different theories. We don't know. But he had something that bothered him, and he prayed about it three times, and yet God did not take it away from him. And so he's like, I've prayed about it three times. God has heard me. That's enough now. I'm drawing a line under that, and I will live with this thing that's lacking or incomplete or difficult for me before him, trusting that somehow he is sovereign over my life anyway. And she very wisely said, I now need to discern, do I keep trying and praying or do I need to do a pull on this? And it was an interesting moment. It was a wise thing to say. And she needs to go away and pray and think and just wrestle with that alongside her husband. Perhaps it will be time to draw a line and consider adoption or something else. It doesn't take away the pain. But the degree to which we are able to take our pain to God is the degree to which we will experience his peace coming. As we trust the Lord Almighty to work in us and through us. And we learn so much about God in this passage. The fact that this passage is even in our Bible tells us something about God. It tells us that he knows and that he does care. And that this pain and these pains we go through, whatever they are, are very real and very significant. But it tells us more than that too. It tells us that he is at work in bringing about his kingdom which will eventually be pain-free. His kingdom will be free from all the malfunctions that are the result of living in a fallen creation. Because God does remember his people, and he is sovereignly at work. We learn in this passage, and flipping over into chapter 2, just how much God is working to bring about his kingdom. Now, just very quickly, um, we were chatting upstairs uh, before the service, a few of us, and, um, and we were realizing just how many women there were in the Bible who were basically told they couldn't have children and were barren, and yet God opened their womb. Have you noticed this? So right at the beginning of the Bible, we've got Sarah and Abraham. Then we've got Rebecca and Rachel then Ruth, now Hannah. We flip to the New Testament. Well, Mary hasn't even had a chance yet, but, you know, she gets one. Elizabeth. Like, have you noticed this crazy pattern of how many there are? Well, wh why? Why is that? The reason is, is that it's a little picture for us that God is at work to utterly transform what seems impossible to us to being possible. That his kingdom is about an utter transformation of the things that have gone wrong in this life and this world. And so what he does for Hannah is just a little micro sign of the macro work that he's doing. 
And I'm going to finish by just showing you really quickly, because I think this is so cool and so important, chapter two. Just flick your eyes to it just very quickly, because she starts talking about the fact that God has delivered her. And she's talking about the fact that God, yes, he's given her a child, but when you start reading that passage, and she's talking about the deliverance, it doesn't really mention much about the fact that she's become a mum. It becomes clear that she's actually talking about the fact that she's been delivered from something far greater than childlessness. It's a deliverance on a grander scale. Yes, she's been blessed by God by having the son. Wonderful. But actually, in this picture of her having a son, she realizes that God is doing something much bigger for his people. That there's a macro transformation that God is about And as you have a look through chapter 2, you'll see the hungry are well fed. He'll exhort the humble. God will lift up the needy. God will make alive the dead. That means God will resurrect. God will make the poor inherit the prince's thrones. God will bring about his king, Jesus. And actually God is about on a macro scale, kind of bringing about his transformative kingdom. And in that, we can rejoice that God remembers his people and he is at work. And say for us today, in the meantime, as we live between the now and the not yet, we have a choice about where we take our pain. And I just want to encourage you this week, take it to God. Take it to God in prayer. Take it to him in prayer. Again, take it to him in prayer. And will you join in with what he's doing? Will you join in with this kingdom that is pain-free? Unforgiveness is not allowed in the kingdom. Hatred and spite towards another is not allowed in the kingdom. Hungry people, not allowed in the kingdom. They're going to be well-fed. And so this passage leads us towards that hope of seeing that kingdom. And that's what we're encouraged into. As Hannah receives the tiny answer of her prayer on the bigger scale, it points to that bigger scale of God's deliverance. It's an amazing passage. And uh, let's pray. I realize that some of this passage is very sensitive Um, that some of us might be going through that pain right now uh, that's very like Hannah's in whatever way. And we just want to stand with you tonight, if that's you. Whether that's you've not yet found someone you'd love to have children with or that you're unable to. um, We just want to stand with you in that there isn't an easy answer, but we don't want to belittle your pain. For others of us, there'll be different pains that we're wrestling with. Different things that are difficult for us. Father, we just uh, come before you. Graciously help us to be the people that pour out our pain to you, that take it to you. So we don't take it out on others, that we don't numb it or deny it, but that we take it to you in prayer. 
And as we do that, we pray, uh, Lord, be faithful to your promise that you would pour upon us that peace that transcends all understanding. And help us to catch a glimpse like Hannah did of that bigger work of deliverance, your bigger story that you're calling us to be part of, that you're weaving us into. May that give us much hope and excitement this week. That any momentary troubles will pale into insignificant compared with the great things you are doing. Give us your perspective, Lord, we pray. Amen.